0: It's a really far stretch to say that there's a pleasure button in every corner and we're all looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container.
1: Hey guys, it's your girl Ashley Graham and you are listening to Business Life and Coffee Podcast with your boy Joey Price. What's up and thank you for tuning into another episode of the Business Life and Coffee Podcast. This week we're talking all about stress eating overeating, binge eating, and why it's so prevalent in our culture today. The guest that you'll be listening to is Dr. Glenn Livingston, who is a veteran psychologist and was the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. Glenn has sold over $30 million of marketing consulting services over the course of his career, and you may have seen his or his company's previous work, theories, and research in major periodicals like the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Indiana Star-Ledger, the New York Daily News, American Demographics, or any of the other major media outlets that you see. Joining us, Dr. Glenn, how's it going? Thanks for coming on the show.
0: Oh, it's going really well, and I'm happy to be here.
1: Now, Dr. Livingston, you have a unique background on this topic. Could you tell everyone your journey with your own weight loss experience?
0: I spent 30 years struggling with a pretty serious food problem. And when it started out, I actually felt like it was more like a superpower than a problem, as Doug Graham used to say. I'm fairly tall, I'm six foot four, and I'm reasonably muscular. And when I was a boy, 16, 17 years old, I figured out that if I worked out for two and a half or three hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to—whole pizzas, box of muffins, six chocolate bars, lattes. We didn't call them lattes back then. Whatever I wanted to, I could eat whatever I wanted to. And unfortunately, as I got older and I got married, and I had am a psychologist and a family of 17 psychotherapists. So I had patients, and I was commuting a few hours a day. I just didn't have time to work out. Maybe two half hours per week. And I was getting older and my metabolism was slowing down, but I couldn't stop eating like I was eating. So I'm still having 7,000, 8,000, 10,000 calories a day. And worse yet, I'm just constantly obsessing about food. And I I really wanted to be a great psychologist because I, like I said, I come from a family of psychologists and I I was working in high-risk situations with suicidal clients and with people who were Couples right after an affair and you know, dealing with the whole family in some ways. And it was very bad to be sitting there because you have to be very present to really help those people. But a lot of times I'd be sitting there thinking, well, when can I get to the testament and dislodge my jaw and empty the contents of the daily tray into it? Or you know, when can I get another pizza? When can I get a donut? I, that's what my life was like. And sometimes if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So coming from a family of psychologists and knowing the best psychologists in New York and psychiatrists and nutritional experts, I went about trying to solve it psychologically in every way I knew how. I took medication. I went to Orbiters Anonymous. I dug deep to figure out, well, it's not what I'm eating. It must be what's eating me. So where is the hole in my heart? How does this? How did this happen? And it just didn't work. And in my late 30s, I started to administer a research protocol online to see if I could figure out what the relationship was with particular binge foods and particular personality struggles, life struggles. And I constructed a survey. I, I was ai don't have kids and I never commuted. So I had a dual career and I was doing a lot of corporate consulting and they were paying me a lot of money to construct these big studies and execute them and tell them what they meant. So I, I figured I'd do one for myself. Over the course of about five years, I got 40,000 people to fill out a survey, which told me the foods that they struggled with and what areas of their life were most difficult for them and some other personality variables. And I also started studying a lot of alternative addiction treatment routines because Old Anonymous wasn't working for me. So I found three very interesting things which got me a lot of publicity but didn't solve the problem. I want to tell you I want to tell you that up front. Three of the most interesting things that I found in that study were that people who struggled with chocolate like I did, because my binges usually started with chocolate, tended to be more lonely or brokenhearted. People who struggled with salty, crunchy things, you know, like chips and pretzels and things like that, they tended to be more stressed at work. And people who struggled with soft, chewy, starchy things tended to be more stressed at home. And so I thought at that point that all I needed to do was find out what people struggled with and then fix those problems in their life and everything would be better. So I started with myself. And I asked my mom, mom, you know, I'm in a bad marriage. So, of course, I'm a little lonely and broken hearted. And I'm trying to work on that. Turns out I'm divorced now. But I would very much like to know, since you're a therapist and you raised me, what is it in my upbringing that could have sent me running into chocolate when I felt lonely or broken hearted? And mom got this horrible look on her face. And she said, honey, I'm so sorry. And I said, what? And she said, but well, when you were really little, like one, two years old, You'd come crying to me, but I didn't have the wherewithal to hold you and hug you and love you and feed you correctly because my father had just gotten out of prison and I was so depressed and disillusioned because I adored him my whole life and he was guilty and it was just awful for me. And at the same time, your father and my husband, he was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam, even though we had a kid and I was terrified. And so what I did, I figured out you like chocolate syrup, chocolate Bosco syrup. And I got a big bottle. And I kept it in a little refrigerator on the floor. And whenever you came running to me, I'd say, honey, go get your Bosco. And you'd go running over to the refrigerator and you'd take the bottle out of the refrigerator and you'd suck on it and go into a sugar coma. And I didn't have to bother feeding or loving you at that point. And I could just resume staring at the wall and being horribly depressed the way that I was. And if this were the movies at that moment, Mama and I would have a really big hug and a big cry. And I'd never have trouble with chocolate again. Right. It's not the movies. Uh, we did have a big hug and a big cry. And I, it was a good conversation to have because I became more compassionate towards myself about what I've been through and more forgiving towards my mom. And it was I learned all sorts of things about my mom, extending from that conversation. So I encourage people to have those kind of conversations. But it didn't fix the problem. As a matter of fact, it made it worse. And I know now the reason it made it worse is because there was this little voice inside me that said, hey, you know what, Glenn, you're right. You're a mom. I didn't love you enough. And she left a big chocolate sized hole in your heart. And until you can find the love of your life, you have to just go right on binging. Giffy, let's go get some right now. And I found very similar things. If I would talk to clients who are stressed at work and binging on chips, they will, until we can get the man's boot off of our neck, we're just going to have to settle for these pretzels or Doritos or whatever they are. Let's go get some now. And at the same time, in the alternative addiction world that I was reading, came across a guy's work, uh, his name is Jack Trimpey at Rational Recovery, and he works largely with black and white addictions like drugs and alcohol, the kinds of things that you can quit entirely versus having to take the lion out of the cage and walk it around the block a few times a day like food. And he basically pointed out, not in so many words, that you can't love yourself out of an addiction. It's not like nurturing your inner wounded child back to health because the Seat of addiction is the lizard brain. And if you look in neurology, when the lizard brain sees something in the environment, it thinks to itself, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? Eat, mate, or kill. There is no love there. There is no long-term aspirations. There's no concern for tribe or family. There's no interest in creativity or spirituality or art or music or contribution to society or your diet and your weight and weight loss plans. It's just eat, mate or kill. And then I really put it together because in the consulting work I was doing for corporations, it became really clear to me that they're spending billions of dollars engineer these food-like substances, not food, but food-like substances that hit your bliss point without giving you enough nutrition to make you feel satisfied. And it's perfectly legal for them to hyper-concentrate these very palatable um, sources of starch and sugar and fat and oil and salt and excitotoxins so that they can do that. And if you look at the animal studies and what happens when you short-circuit our evolutionary pleasure systems, when when you give people uh, well, there are actually studies done in rats and lower mammals. But if you give them the opportunity to get more pleasurable stimulation than nature has to offer, they begin to ignore their survival needs. So if you if you put an electrode in a rat's brain, for example, in the pleasure center, and let that route self-stimulate by pressing the button whenever they want to, a starving rat will ignore food and press that button thousands of times per day. A nursing mother rat will ignore her pups to press that button thousands of times per day. We ignore what's important and we gravitate towards these unnatural, I know no one's putting electrodes in our brains, but is it a really far stretch when you can walk out of a McDonald's and across the street is another McDonald's? Is it a really far stretch to say that there's a pleasure button in every corner and we're all looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container? And we're taught to ignore our survival needs, which are basically fruit and vegetables, right? I mean, depending upon your dietary philosophy, maybe some natural meats also. But people will tell you that they just don't like fruit and vegetables as much. And everybody knows if you want to you know, lose weight and feel great, you got to have more fruit and vegetables, <laughs> or at least vegetables. They're different philosophies. I happen to believe it's fruit and vegetables, but they're different philosophies. And I'm not promoting a diet here, so whatever you, however you get, I can help you. But people feel like they just don't like it anymore. And so I got angry. I got mad that this is what's happening in our society, that the big companies are allowed to hijack our survival needs for profit. I did something kind of embarrassing, but it turned out to be the thing that worked. I decided that, this is an unfortunate metaphor because I could have used another metaphor, but this is what I did. I said... I'm going to call my lizard brain my inner pig, and I'm going to create a couple of rules for myself that are very black and white, so it'll be like I'm giving up drugs. So, for example, I will never have chocolate Monday to Friday again. And if I hear any voice in my head that says that I should have chocolate for any reason whatsoever, you know, because I worked out hard enough and I could afford it or I could start again tomorrow or, or, you know, it's just so yummy, whatever it was. I was going to dismiss that as pig squeal because I don't eat pig slop and I don't let fire animals tell me what to do. And I never expected it to work, but it was crazy. It, It wasn't a miracle, but it started to give me those extra microseconds that I needed at the moment of impulse to wake up and remember who I was and what role I wanted chocolate to play in my life. And I found that I was gradually able to become the kind of person who just doesn't have chocolate to It changed my personality. I became a different kind of person over time. Then I came up with different ways to formulate those rules. And, you know, I I developed a whole system around it. But, you know, I, I lost 50 pounds. My triglycerides came down and the doctor stopped yelling at me. And then I, fortuitous set of circumstances, was encouraged to edit my journal where I kept notes on all this into a book. And the book took off, and it has over 500,000 downloads, and we're helping all sorts of people. So that's my story in a nutshell.
1: So, Dr. Glenn, you've authored a book. Tell us about this book that you've written.
0: Well, the book's called Never Binge Again, and you can get a free copy at neverbingeagain.com in electronic format. And I wrote it as an allegory. It's a very different kind of book. It's a take-no-prisoners kind of approach. It's you versus your inner food demon or your inner pig or whatever you want to call it and it's i you know i studied persuasive copywriting for a lot of years over the course of my consulting career so i knew how to write this in a way that would really motivate people and I'd written it for myself to really motivate me. So there are a lot of conversations that I had with my inner pig, the things that it would say to talk me out of my best laid plans and help people to come up with answers for that. It's a big part of the book. People say that they feel like I'm reading their diaries to them. That They feel like I'm inside their head and I know what they're thinking next or know what their inner pig is thinking next. And they tell me that one of two reactions. One is that, oh my God, I read the whole thing in a night. I sat there and laughed out loud and I couldn't stop reading it. The other is, I know this is right, but I effing hate it and I'm not going to read it. And it takes them, you know, six months or a year to read it. They just, they pick it up, they put it down, they pick it up, they put it down. But they, most people have an understanding that it's right. The reaction that I get from some people, and if you look at the reviews about that 85% of the people love it and the people who don't love it absolutely hate it. People get confused with the idea, they think that I'm calling them a pig, and I'm I'm really not. What I'm advocating is that rather than trying to love yourself thin, that you understand that the source of your problem comes from a bodily organ, kind of like your bladder, right? Your bladder generates some very powerful biological urges, which have to be directed and controlled and dominated. You can't thoroughly love your bladder when you really have to pee and say, just let it express itself, because... It's either going to be very uncomfortable or you're going to get in a lot of trouble. You have to go find a, you have to go find a bathroom. It's actually the basis of our society. You can't, you can't participate in society if you insist on peeing wherever you want to. It's the same thing. You take control of this bodily organ and you, you dominate it because we're We're wired for that kind of dominance. Our neocortex and frontal lobes are superior to the lizard brain. They evolved later, or God put them there if you want to think like that. It doesn't really matter. But they're wired superior to the lizard brain to mediate the impulses that are generated by the lizard brain for the benefit of the organism, for the benefit of the tribe, to make sure that the impulses that are generated by the lizard brain are in concert with your longer-term goals and the need to connect and have a community and participate in society. And so we have this ability to dominate it. We just have to be willing to dominate it. And it takes a little bit of thinking work. A good part of the book is also how do you define these rules? How do you phrase them? I present four different buckets of things that you'll never do, things that you'll always do, things that you'll do under certain conditions, and things you can do in an unrestricted way. Those are just suggestions. You can make the rules any way that you want to. But um, it takes a little bit of work up front. It's kind of like... Um, Kind of like learning how to drive, where you have to study the rules of the road and pass a little tests first, but then your freedom and your, your radius of locomotion expands dramatically once you ha- once you can drive. And you don't have to think about the rules of the road all the time. Most people daydream while they're driving because they know what to do at a red light and they know what to do at a four-way stop, and they just they just don't have to think. So that's what the book is about. It's about talking yourself into creating very solid rules. Understanding how you can present them to your pig as if they're set in stone, even though you can change them anytime you want to. Listening for your inner pig's rationale, illogical rationale for breaking these rules. Learning how to recognize those squeals, or what I call them, and find the lies within them so you disempower them. And then learning how to cultivate confidence instead of fear. We live in a culture where we're taught to cultivate fear about our own bodies or we need sponsors, or we think that we're diseased, or we have to set up these accountability buddies. But the truth is, Dorothy, you have what it takes to get home the whole time. It feels like such a serious problem. And and you can really, I mean, you can die from this problem. You really can. And I I almost did. My triglycerides were over 1,100. And I'm really lucky that I didn't have a heart attack or a stroke. So people really can die from this problem, but that doesn't mean the solution has to be incredibly difficult. It's like you could drown in six inches of mud, but if you stop panicking and you take a look around and you stand up, you're going to be uncomfortable for a little while. It's going to be hard to catch your breath. You're going to have to wash off, but you can just stand up and walk away. You really can. And I know that that's almost heresy to say and people feel like it's supposed to be a much more complicated problem than that. And you're supposed to solve all your emotional difficulties. But what I tell people about that, you don't have to solve them first. Like, I, you know, I'm still lonely and brokenhearted in some ways. I don't have the love of my life. And ladies, if you're listening and there's somebody out there, <laughs> but, but um, I could either be brokenhearted and fat or I could be brokenhearted and thin. <laughs> I'd rather be brokenhearted and thin. And you can, if the emotional upset is the fire, what I'm advocating is that you construct a better fireplace, which is more focus on what healthy versus unhealthy behavior is, very specific rules so that you can draw those lines, very specific attention to how the fire jumps out with these irrational reasons for breaking your plan, and contain the fire. Once it's contained and it's not running them up, your life is so much calmer and easier, then you can work on the emotional difficulty. So I I think most psychologists have it wrong. I think I think Overeaters Anonymous has it wrong. I think that they're all trying to solve some very complex, very deep personality-based characterological problems first. And that, and that can take five or 10 years with a good therapist. And I learned a lot of good therapists. So solve the eating problem first and then worry about the psychology after if you want to. Some people don't want to. Some people just feel like they've become a naturally better person. When they stop eating junk, they can focus a lot more on their businesses and their careers and they can accomplish things because you you have so much people waste an incredible amount of energy, especially entrepreneurs, you know, who an entrepreneur is someone who works 23 hours a day for themselves because they don't want to work one hour a day for anybody else. And I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, so I, I know that really well. But the amount you can get done if your body is not at war with food, the amount you can get done if you're not constantly obsessing about when are you going to eat and how are you going to control yourself and how are you going to make up for what you're going to eat and what are you going to do about your weight and what are you going to do about your health and you know how are you going to deal with your wife bugging you about the potbelly you're developing and it, without thinking about all that, you can put all that energy into your projects. And you know when I stopped binging, that's when my business really took off. So. It's a very, very practical method for containing the fire so that you can get on with your life. And if your goal is to put out the fire, it's a lot easier to do that once it's contained. If you're not focusing on the fire and just put your energy into other things, it's a lot easier to do that once it's contained. So,
1: you know, just build a better
0: fireplace. That's that's what I'm
1: saying. Awesome. Well, Dr. Glenn, how can people take the next step to connect and learn more about you and your offerings?
0: Well, thanks for asking that. What I'd like you to do is go over to NeverBingeAgain.com and click the big red free bonus button. When you'll do that, you'll be able to sign up to get a free copy of the Kindle or the Nook or the PDF version of the book. There are also links to um, the paid paperback and, and Audible versions if you prefer that. But I want you to sign up for the list anyway because what you'll also get are a whole bunch of recordings of me actually coaching people through this. It's a really weird philosophy in theory. It sounds really harsh. I promise you that it's not. If you hear me actually coaching people you'll say, oh, this guy's a really compassionate guy and this, this process seems to make people feel better about themselves, not worse. It's not really what I was afraid of. So we have a bunch of those things. And then I constructed a food plan starter template. So regardless of your dietary philosophy, whether you're low-carb or high-carb or vegan or macrobiotic or paleolithic or ketogenic or whatever it is that you're trying to eat, whatever you really believe, this is about helping you stick to it. And we created a set of rules for each version. We call them starter templates because I don't want to take responsibility for how you're eating. It, it turns out that a big part of food addiction is the desire to give away your autonomy and then rebel against whoever you gave it to. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm not going to take responsibility for, for how you're eating because the pig will eventually say, well, that diet doctor's plan is no good. We might as well try another way, but in the meantime we can binge. So you get the food plan starter templates, you get a free copy of the book, and you get the recorded coaching sessions all
1: at neverbingeing.com. Click the big red free bonus button. If you've recently started a business, why take away time from what you're good at only to focus on difficult, pesky HR problems? Jumpstart HR LLC offers a better solution. Jumpstart HR provides HR outsourcing support to US-based small businesses and startups and was recently ranked among the top 10 HR outsourcing firms in the country according to businessnewsdaily.com. From recruitment to employee handbooks to legal compliance, Jumpstart HR helps you get peace of mind about the people in your business. Visit jumpstart-hr.com for more information or follow on Twitter at Jumpstart HR. Jumpstart HR, let's build a better business together. Thanks for listening to the Business Life and Coffee Show with Joey Price.